from chapters 27 and 28 this morning. I'm obviously not Pastor Mike. I just want to assure you that what he's up to this morning is that he is fulfilling a commitment to swap pulpits with uh, Michael Kelshaw of Trinity in the Marketplace. He will be back, I promise, and he's not going anywhere, I promise, but you have me this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Job. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the back. It's our gift to you. Happy to have you have a copy of God's Word. As we, as we open God's Word this morning, I think a lot of you are probably aware of the anniversary that this weekend represents. If you go back about 12 hours in time, we are exactly 50 years to the, to the moment when man first stepped onto the surface of the moon, July 20th, 1969. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin piloted to that, that lunar module to the surface of the Earth. And just a few minutes after they landed, Buzz Aldrin took the first meal on the surface of the Earth, of the surface of the moon, excuse me. And it was communion. He took the, the Lord's Supper uh, privately just before Neil Armstrong stepped out and, and he and Buzz Aldrin walked on the surface of the, of the moon. Such an incredible accomplishment. It really, in, in my mind, maybe the most amazing thing that humanity's accomplished in my lifetime. I was just a little kid when it happened. But there were, there were 400,000 people that contributed to that moon landing through the Apollo program, the Saturn V development, the, the space capsule, the lander, and everything that went with it. 400,000 people representing about 20,000 companies and organizations that contributed to that, to that event. And 50 years ago, there were nearly a billion people on the planet watching television live as, as they stepped onto the surface of the moon. That was about 25% of every man, woman, and child on the planet at that time. It was so amazing. It was really a pinnacle moment in human accomplishment. And by the way, there were three different gigantic receivers pointed at the moon. I mean, pointed right at the moon. Goldstone in California and two... Uh, two giant dishes in Australia pointed at the moon receiving television transmissions. There was no hoax, okay? They've got the tapes. It's real. It's real. I'm sorry. Debate that all day. This is, it was an amazing human accomplishment. You know, it reflects really the tenacity, the intelligence, the curiosity of the human spirit. All of it's absolutely true. It's, it, we have an amazing capacity and, and it reflects the image of God that's within us. Whether we know him or not, we are reflecting the image of God. You know, it also highlights, though, that there's a lot of contrast between the great human accomplishments and other things that are equally true of us. One of them is there's such a contrast between what human beings can accomplish and what we cannot accomplish. We can go to the moon and beyond, but we cannot fix the problem of sin and selfishness and evil within our own hearts. We have an enormous capacity uh, for wisdom, but we can't even begin to touch the enormity of God's creation and the wisdom of God that went in to making all of that we are exploring. And as we're going to see in Job this morning, there are all kinds of contrasts between the understanding of good and evil, of righteousness and of wickedness, of wisdom and intelligence, and, and the relationships that we as human beings have with one another and with God, that we have very different perspectives on what's going on. 
And so as we move forward into God's word this morning, I want to take just a quick moment. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dig into God's word. Lord, may your word this morning give us help in understanding these things. May we see the need to be cleansed and declared righteous. Lord, may we understand how this can happen and what it is that we need to do. May we celebrate and put to use the incredible intelligence that you've given us, but even more so, may we seek you as the source of all wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of Job chapter 27 and 28 actually goes back a couple of weeks when Chris Risk was preaching. He had started in Job chapter 25, and there's a little speech made by Bildad, one of one of Job's friends and supposed comforters. And Bildad has some interesting words to, to say, and all of chapter 27 and 28 are in response to, to what Bildad had to say. So if you're in chapter 25, I'm going to share just a few verses from it. Starting in verse 4, Bildad says, How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Okay, Bildad asserted a couple things that are not true. They might sound good, but as has been true of so much of the advice of his friends, it's not true. And he uses a false statement to support what is not true in the first place. The first thing is this, that he says twice rhetorically that human beings can never be right with God. Now, that's, that's kind of a self-defeating thing to say because he's a human being. So, you know, actually what he's saying is you, Job, can't be right with God. Now, Chris mentioned a couple weeks ago something very profound about what his logic was in saying that. Um, Bildad appealed to God's creation being imperfect to prove that human beings will never be pure. He says the moon is not bright. Well, okay, let's take a second and think about what what we discovered on that day 50 years ago. That moon dust had some incredible visual properties. It was driving everyone crazy how bright the sun was reflecting off the surface of the moon. You know, all I can think of as an analogy is when you go skiing sometimes and it's everything is white. There's just snow everywhere. Here's the sun beating down on you, and then it's reflecting on the snow, from the snow and it just cooks your face in no time. You, you can get sunburned in minutes because it feels like the sun is coming from everywhere. And that's really what the surface of the moon is like. So it's, it's not remotely correct to say that the moon is not bright, bright. And then furthermore, he says that he implies anyway that wisdom is not attainable, and at least not by Job. He, he once again has to devolve into name-calling, and he calls him a maggot and a worm. And it reflects Bildad's view that all of creation is flawed. He says that the stars are not pure in God's eyes. Well, now wait a minute. God made the stars. How in the world would they not be pure in his own eyes? And so Bildad's logic is completely flawed in his, his two conclusions, that human beings can't be right with God and that wisdom is unattainable, are, are not true. And it's those two things that we're going to address this morning as we turn to Job 27 and then chapter 28. So let's start with, with chapter 27, which I've, I've kind of framed as turning away from evil. 
And you're, we're also going to be jumping to Romans 4 as well to kind of help us out here this morning. So we have this thought about worms and maggots and the human condition. So let's, let's sit there for just a moment and think about it. it. I have to admit it reminded me of an old hymn. Yeah, that worms and maggot thing. Alas, and did my Savior... This is Isaac Watts. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Wow. Some people actually changed the changed the the, uh, the words of that hymn. And, whoops. And that's kind of crazy because they were just so offended by it. But let's keep going. Was it for sin that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. So what is it that, that Isaac Watts is doing using that, that kind of gross term for, for human beings? Well, what he's doing is he's pointing out to us the desperate need that we have for a Savior, the, the disconnect that we have, the, the, the worminess of the human soul apart from God. It's, it's important because if that's not true, then the entire gospel kind of becomes irrelevant, right? I mean, if, if, if all Christ did was kind of just dust off an otherwise flawless human being and lovable person, then grace is not amazing. And we don't need pity. We were already pretty great to begin with. And we were lovable. If we're lovable in the first place, there is no love beyond degree. So it's, a, it's an important, really theological point that the hymn writer is pointing out. And he quickly moves on from it to say this in the, in the chorus. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. The worm is turned. We've, this, this author, has Isaac Watts, has received his sight and he is joyful and happy in the Lord. Praise God he didn't leave him or us as worms. But Bildad is no Isaac Watts. And he is simply accusing Job of being unredeemed. And it's due to his afflictions. You know, Bildad's not very creative. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 7, Job said that his, his afflictions were so nasty that his clothes were covered with worms. Bildad's sitting across from them and he's looking at him going, oh, you're wormy. Oh, you're a worm. It's like junior high name-calling. It's really not anything more than a declaration that you are a gross person and the reason you're gross is because of your sin and because you're terribly wicked. And that brings us to this question. How is it that we can be declared and that we can actually turn away from evil? Because that's what God said about Job. If God, if Job is turned away from evil, how did that happen? How did that happen? And there's two things that go hand in hand. And, and Paul in the New Testament is going to help us out with how this happens. First of all, we are justified by faith. And second of all, we are declared and made righteous by the hand of God. Let's start with being justified by faith. It's true of Job. Job has been justified by faith. And it's also true that he was declared righteous by God. In the first verse of the book of Job, God declares that Job is blameless and upright. And then in verse 8, when he's talking to Satan, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He's declared righteous by God himself. And there's a great contrast or a symmetry 
really, that is going on between the first book, the first chapter of Job, and chapter 28. Look at it here. In, in uh, chapter 1, God says that Job is an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. At the end of chapter 28, Job says, The fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. The same phrase, the same terminology. Job had no insight into what God had said. This is just God putting his truth in the heart of, of his servant. It's, a be- it's beautiful symmetry, and it's a critical truth that we need to take hold of here this morning. So now back into Job in, in chapter 27. Job, this is the beginning of the chapter. Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as there is breath in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say, Bildad, you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. There's quite a bit going on here. First of all, Job is continuing to lament the, the bitterness of his life and his, his path, and, and who can blame him for that? God does not blame him for that. Then he, he also speaks these words, which you, you almost want to choke on. I will hold fast to my righteousness. You could take that a couple of ways, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to submit to you that these are not the words of an arrogant man here, because jo- J- God had already declared Job to be blameless and upright. And if a person can say those words that they have integrity and are righteous and that and that's not false, then we ought to know how it is that that's possible. How in the world is it possible that someone could say those kind of words and not be rebuked for them? Well, it's simply this. Turning away from evil is not, is not related to what we do and what we don't do. It's being justified by faith. Being justified by faith is the work of God in conjunction, of course, with the response of the human being. Let's go to Romans 4 for a moment. I think Paul really helps us understand what's happened, not only for us, but for those who lived before Christ came and, and fulfilled God's promises on earth. In, in turning away from evil, we're going to find here that it's not about good works. It's not about doing good. It is much more, much more than stopping doing bad things and start doing good things. Turning away implies repentance. It implies a change of heart, a change, a turning. Is think that sounds like repentance. It's a change of direction, a change of identity, of attitude, of action in one's life. It's responding to what God has done. So here's where we're going to hear this from from Paul in Romans chapter 4. And it describes how it is that a man like Abraham or a man like Job could be declared righteous, or us for that matter. Starting in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Now, the, the context of that was that God had told Abraham that his offspring would be so numerous that he couldn't even count them. And that was kind of a crazy promise at the time, as, as old as he and his wife were. But Abraham believed him. Abraham put his faith in God. And this is how it was that he was justified. He was justified by faith and not by works. And so was Job, because there's no other way. And so are we, because there's no other way. Paul wants us to be absolutely sure about how to apply this to ourselves. Down in the same chapter in Romans, starting in verse 23, Paul says, But these words, that it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. Then in, in verse 1 of the next chapter, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith, not by works. That's true of Job, Abraham, and us. And it, it gives an immediate benefit an immediate fruit. It's so it's so tied that they're almost the same thing. That this being justified by God immediately allows us to be declared or made righteous. And now it's this is where it really gets challenging, being declared to be righteous. Justifications is the means by which we are declared to be righteous. A definition here. Justification is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin while at the same time making a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. So Job was justified by his faith. He believed God and he trusted God, and he was declared righteous by God. So here's a tough one. Have you been justified? Would you call yourself righteous? If you aren't sure, if you don't know whether you can embrace that, then don't just start being a better person. That's the whole point of Paul's speech here about avoiding good works, put your faith in Christ. Christ was the one who deli delivered, was delivered up for our sin and he was raised for our justification. Repent and turn away from the attempts to make righteousness something that you own and trust in Christ's sacrifice and his payment for our sin. That is the only way that you can turn away from evil. That's the only way it happens. This is how we are declared righteous. Okay, back to 27, chapter 27 for a minute. When Job attained this righteousness declared by God through faith, through believing in him, he was not about to give it up. He had obtained something that he described as more valuable than anything on earth, and he was not going to give it up. And by the way, neither should we. He said, I will hold fast to my righteousness. I will not let it go. You know, it goes on in chapter 27 to declare that his, his friends were now his enemies. And, and Job is mad and hurt and frustrated and angry. And here's how he describes his, his former friends here. Let my enemy, enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off and God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. 
Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? You know, Job's friends, and here Bildad, calls Job a worm simply because of what they're looking at. He looks wormy. You know, they they call him uh, sinful because only a sinful person would look wormy. He is, you know what, it's understandable that Job would call a person with that kind of acclaim his enemy. It's certainly true because, because the words that Bildad is speaking about Job are untrue. And so ultimately what, what is being spoken is untrue of God as well. And uh, by the way, who in the world would tell a, a blameless and upright man that he doesn't know God simply because he's suffering? That's been a common theme throughout the book of Job. So God, Job would have done well to stop right there. The argument would have been over and he would have won. But he's mad and angry and frustrated. And so he goes on and goes over the top. You ever been in an argument and you know you're right and you know you're winning? Right up until you say something stupid because you're so mad. And you, you insult or, or basically speak something that isn't true. And the next thing you know, you're the one apologizing. That's kind of what happened to Job here. He goes on in his anger in verse 13. Kind of wish he hadn't, but he says of Bildad, Well, this is the portion of a wicked man like you, the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it's for the sword, and his descendants won't have enough bread. Well, you know what? That's exactly the nonsense that his friends were saying about Job in the the last week when we were talking about it. It's not true. You know, the, the righteous prosper frequently. The righteous have lots of children. There's no reason to think that, or the unrighteous, excuse me. There's no reason to think unrighteous people won't, will have their children all killed. That was, the, that was the terrible thing that was being told of Job by his friends, and now he's turning it back on their heads. Um, Job's not perfect. He's being used by God to teach us a lot of things, but he's also struggling and suffering. And later, he's going to be pretty strongly rebuked by the Lord for actually not understanding that everything he says isn't right, and he doesn't really understand everything of God. In fact, last week, we saw that the lasting legacy of a person is eternal, but there's no reason to think that earthly legacies are limited only to people who are following God. There's lots of statues of ungodly people. Now, in chapter 27, uh, in uh, verses 16 through 23, and I'm not going to read all these verses, Job uh, describes the destruction of earthly wealth, and I think he's starting to move to a different, uh, a different uh, idea in terms of, of God's interaction with us. I'll just read one verse, and he's now speaking of his so-called friend and says, He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes, and his wealth is gone. Now, it's entirely possible that Job is, is saying of his friend Bildad that you're going to be impoverished by God because you're so sinful, which is exactly the wrong thing that his friends have been saying to him. It might be that maybe Job is saying, well, the minute you wake up on the other side of eternity and your eyes are opened, all of the things you thought were valuable are gone. That would be the kind thing that might be true of Job. I can't be sure. And so... What I do know is that uh, there's a transition going on in Job's thinking to the imagery of chapter 28, which has to do with wisdom and with valuable things. So let's move there. Let's move to chapter 28, which is, is entitled to fear God and to gain the wisdom of God. 
And Job immediately starts talking about the intelligence and the accomplishments of man. You probably wondered why I brought up the Apollo thing. Well, I'm finally connecting it here now. So I probably would have brought it up no matter what, just because it's really neat. And I, I'm just excited about, about what human beings accomplished. But it connects well with what Job has to say in the early verses of chapter 28 in Job. Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. From it is uh, iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to the darkness and searches out to the farthest limits that are in the gloom and deep darkness of mines. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air. Far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by, his, by its roots. He cuts channels out of the rocks, and his eyes see every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing it, that is hidden is brought to light. So Job didn't have astronauts to marvel at, but he had miners. He, had, he was marveling at human beings' abilities to move rock and to dig mine shafts that were so deep that it was utterly dark that they could be lit somehow. And by the way, I don't know how they did that. I don't know how you light these deep shafts. All I can think of is Shrek and a torch, you know. I, I don't know what, maybe that's all it was. Maybe they were just carrying little lanterns or something. They certainly didn't have generators and whatnot. So it's really kind of an amazing accomplishment to be, be a miner thousands and thousands of years ago, smelting and, and pulling precious metals out of, out of hunks of rock, moving these rocks, cutting these giant channels, making dams for for the rivers exposing precious metals they're all they're all incredible accomplishments they're amazing and god uh, and job is just marveling at them again he's marveling at the human intellect the curiosity the tenacity of the human spirit if if job lived today he'd be saying the same things about moon landings and rocket ships and computers and brain surgery and cell phones and gps and and satellites it's all good it's all commendable. In fact, if, if you look in history, those mines that he's talking about were part of the promise of God when uh, after, after uh, Israel was established and, and ended up being all the Israelites were in Egypt and were being brought back to the promised land. That was one of the promises of God, that there's these awesome mines and they'll be yours again someday. It's all good. But, but, this connecting word in verse 12, but it seems so often we need to pay, pay attention to tiny little words. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Then Job goes on in for many verses to say in simple terms, this wisdom is not found in the sea. It's not found in gold or silver or onyx or sapphire, glass, jewels, coral, crisp, crystal, pearls, or topaz. It's hidden from everything that's living, and it's not found in the, in the land of the dead either. Wisdom cannot be found simply by exploring the earth or the rivers or the seas or the mines or the moon or Mars or the galaxies. That's not where we're going to find wisdom. 
clearly what is at stake here is that the wisdom and accomplishments of man are nothing compared to God's wisdom. They're nothing. God's wisdom is found in fearing God himself and in knowing him. That's where God's wisdom is. And we can only know God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the source of all godly wisdom. Turn with me for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Godly wisdom is only found in our Lord and Savior. Paul makes it clear starting in verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? It's as if he's saying, where's the miner? Where's the astronaut? Where's the rocket scientist? Where's the brain surgeon? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And we preach Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And because of you, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So both Job and Paul recognize that worldly wisdom is worthless and foolish. And, and what's the worldly wisdom that's on Job's mind? It's, it's probably along these lines. If you do good, you're going to get rewarded. And if you do bad you're, and you're sinful, you're going to get punished. You know, there's this karma thing at work. If you want to avoid punishment, you better be good. You want to get closer to God? Well, you better be good. You better do a lot of good things because good things happen to people that do good things. You want to avoid suffering? Do good. It's all a bunch of worldly wisdom. It sounds good. It's not true. And Job, Job says that wisdom from God is found in being right with God. He says you have to believe in him. And, and what's implied is that you need to have faith to turn away from evil. That's where the wisdom is coming from. It's to be righteous. That, it's beautiful what Job says in chapter 28. Now, I, I wouldn't grade Job as an A plus in the entire understanding that he has about God's wisdom. Maybe a B minus, B, I don't know, whatever, if you're feeling generous. It's what everything that he says in chapter 28 is great. But he is, he has not completely grasped the wisdom of God. And he's later rebuked by God for not actually knowing what he's talking about. The, the biggest error that he <clears throat> seemed to be making was that he was getting so angry and he was ascribing to God all kinds of, of negative uh, motivations for what God was doing. And he had said things like, God is now my enemy, and God is angry with me, which is not true and doesn't reflect wisdom. But still, Job did good. I couldn't get a B-minus on that test. 1 Corinthians 1.30, again, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So if we embrace being made righteous and justified by faith through... in uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, then we have access to the wisdom of God because we know God. All right, some applications. I'm going to skip the contrast section because we've already talked about those things. The four, th four things I want you to take away and consider how that might apply to your life. 
The first one is this. We, we need to embrace what's at stake here. We need to appreciate what's at stake, especially for the skeptic and the unbeliever. And if you find yourself in that camp, I, I admit to you that the gospel itself is, is, is hard to understand and I actually think can't really be grasped by, by human intellect alone. It's very simple, but it flies in the face of the wisdom that we're taught from the time that we're born. It requires spiritual insight and discernment. And I would ask you to pray and ask God to reveal the truth to you. I dare you to do it. I dare you to say, God, show me the truth. Because I know that's a prayer God loves to answer. And so we need to go to God as the source of truth if we want to know what the truth really is. If God is the source of wisdom, then it's time for for all of us to, to ask him to reveal this truth to us. Now, if we're following the Lord, it's also a challenge in this area because if you're a Christian, I, I'm guessing like me, you're intimidated by people who are intelligent and wise but who are skeptical and unbelieving because people understand, you know, what's, what's happened is that even though we have the truth of God within us, there's so the skepticism is, is very discouraging. And you hear it over and over again. Oh, you're one of them. Oh, you believe that kind of crazy stuff. It's really easy to get really discouraged. But I'm here to tell you that you possess the truth of the gospel if you know Christ. And God, God has made foolish that wisdom that you're hearing from other people. And the wisdom of God that is counted as foolish by those people. If someone is making you feel stupid then you are likely being absolutely obedient to what God has told you to do. And you're in good company. When we proclaim the truth of God, we are often called stupid. Well, praise God, he knew that was going to happen, and that's why he's encouraging us from his word that the foolishness of God is, is wisdom, and the wisdom of humanity is not worth a hill of beans. So be encouraged by that and hold it to be true. Secondly, we are, as Job was called, to hold fast to righteousness received by faith. You know, I, I said last week that when we misapply God's truth and that truth is no longer true, you know, it's good. It is good and, and was properly emphasized in the hymn that we looked at to emphasize how tiny and pitiful and sinful and needy we are when we're separated from God. But don't misapply that to the rest of your life. It's equally true. It's equally true for the child of God that we are redeemed, that we are adopted, and we are the children of God. We are called friends of God. you believe that? How outrageous is that? We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous by him. We have been declared not guilty. We are temples of the Holy Spirit of God, and we're the bride of Christ. This is all true for those who know and love him. We've been invited to the banquet table to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. And you know what? There are not going to be any maggots at that table. I promise you that. You know, this, this is hard to embrace. It's hard to embrace what God has done on behalf of those who are following him. You know, it even sounds kind of arrogant when people say, well, you're self-righteous. Not true. It's not self-righteous. The righteousness comes from God. It didn't come from me. It was a gift of God. It's through the work of Christ. We have to embrace this. And we have to recognize that we have been changed. The worm is turned, as I said before. Okay? 
Let's embrace this. Move forward with it in enthusiasm and joy, being happy all the day, as Isaac Watt was. Thirdly, stand in awe of the wisdom of God and, and, in, God, uh, and in God's creation. And the wisdom that actually ends up in the minds of human beings. It's worth, it's worth being in awe about what, what people can accomplish. And you know what? I think it's a compelling reason for us to have to continue education, to learn, to explore, to study, to travel, to see what's out there. I am all for it. I think it's important because it helps our faith to grow. If we're looking for God and see, and we're seeking after him, we will find him in his creation. It's an awesome thing. It's a great thing to do. It's part of the, uh, the longing of the soul that a human being has to understand where, who we are and where we came from. But even more importantly is the calling for us to grow in the wisdom of God in Christ. You know, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we know where to start. We know where this roadmap begins, right? It's in the fear and the awe and the worship, the reverence, the honor, the glory, and the praise to God. This is the starting point for wisdom. It's to glorify him and honor him, and, and it's to grow closer to him. I love Google. I'm, I think it's fantastic. But Googling about God and his awesomeness is not the same as drawing near to God. You know, it's, it's, I'll use the analogy of uh, going to a fireworks display, right? You ever watch fireworks on your phone? Ooh, like this tiny little, yeah, just like, that's pathetic. I mean, I don't care how good the, the original was, you know, when somebody films a, a fireworks display and posts it, it's just kind of lame, right? Now, I, I remember the most memorable fireworks display of my life was about 25 years ago. We were in Colorado, and we went to a baseball game, and it was fireworks night. And we, we were in Mile High Stadium. There were 75,000 people at a baseball game because it was the first year, and everybody was excited. And they had a fireworks display, and they decided to do it by lighting off all the fireworks right in the center, right behind second base, right in the middle of the field after the game. We were up on the third level, and the wind was blowing right at us. And that... Those fireworks started going off, and they were going off about 50 feet from my nose. It was, it was awesome, and it was terrifying. It was really scary. I mean, we were getting hit by the shrapnel. Sometimes those little things were still lit, and they were landing on us and landing around us. And I honestly had the fear of God in that moment. You know, and at the same time, this awe of what was going on, it was so cool at the same time that it was so awe-inspiring. And the reason was because we were so close, so close. And that's kind of that picture of how it is that it's only in drawing close to God that we begin to really experience the fear of God, the glory to God, the worship of God, the the, the privilege of beginning to have the spiritual wisdom of God, it's in drawing close to him. When you hunger for that kind of spiritual wisdom, you're going to find that it's only satisfied when you draw close to God through Jesus Christ. And when you are justified and declared work righteous by the work of Jesus Christ, we have the starting point for true spiritual wisdom. Will you pray with me? Lord, I do pray that we might hunger for the wisdom 
and the spiritual insight that that honestly just puts to shame all of the incredible things that, that have been accomplished by humanity through the years, through the ages. The great insights, activities, and accomplishments that we would otherwise achieve pale in comparison. May we believe you when you tell us to put our trust in you. May we receive your justification and this declaration of righteousness by faith. Give us the wisdom to know you, to fear you, to trust you, to love you, because you first loved us. I pray this in Christ's name.